So another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. With me this time out is Darren Myers from PS Audio. Darren, tell us, how old are you? I'm 32 years old. So you're pretty damn young, if you don't mind me saying so, for somebody in the audio business. I mean, do you look around and just think you're surrounded by old people? <laughs> this is not a very politically correct question to start well, I mean, with, is it? <laughs> you know, I think it starts with that it is intimidating because it takes experience mm. and it takes failure to reach a point where you're confident in design, you're confident in mm. sound. And so I would say, if anything, it's just a difficult task jumping into it and jumping into the deep end right away. There has been a lot of struggles. And mm. with that, a lot of learning and a lot of movement on my design philosophies, my philosophies about sound. Mm. And so if anything is just made me stronger being around a lot more experienced people and people that really know what they're doing. And it's invigorating being around that. Right. Okay. We'll jump back to PS Audio in a moment. But before PS Audio, you were doing engineering for class a bmw is that right that's right yeah i worked out of the montreal office for class a audio where mm -hmm. i did various projects for bowers and wilkins as well okay and then before that you were in college or somewhere else so i graduated right before going to work for class a from uncc in north carolina with a uh, degree in electrical engineering Okay. So you really went in at the deep end then, didn't you? It's like straight into a big company. and Yeah. <laughs> and I was an audiophile before that. So right. I was actually going to a uh, school by the name of ECU on mm -hmm. the east side of the state. And uh, mm -hmm. I was getting into being an audiophile and making a system. And I'm just thinking, you know, it was mostly a mechanical engineering degree. And I was thinking, why am I doing this? You know, I go to school and I'm not that fascinated with what I'm doing. And then I come home and I geek out on audio and electronics. Obviously, I need to go and get an electronics degree and I need to pursue designing audio equipment. Uh-huh. So that's obviously what you did, right? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of how I got on this road. And so I went to UNCC, which is the university in, in Charlotte. There's various UNCCs. The most popular one is the one in Chapel Hill, the Tar Heels. Mm -hmm. But I uh, I went to the Charlotte UNCC because they had a really great EE program. So I got into there and transferred from ECU to UNCC. And wow, now you're talking about circuits. You know, now you're studying circuits. Now you're learning about amplifiers. You're learning about the different areas of performance in amplifiers and how to build them. And I was fascinated. You know, I didn't feel like I was going to school anymore. I felt like I was going to a classroom just to be fascinated and learn. Good for you. You've come, a, I guess, a long way, from my perspective, a long way in a very short space of time. And you seem to have, I don't know much about your Bowers and Class A time, but you seem to have really found your feet with PS Audio and Paul McGowan and his team. Yeah, no, part of that is, is uh, I think Paul and I share a lot of similar philosophies. And mm -hmm. uh, he's been so generous in believing in me uh, and pushing mm -hmm. me to the point where at times, you know, I felt uncomfortable. And I think that's when you grow. That's when you learn. Uh, 
you have to make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not learning um, or you're learning very slowly. Um, and so I will say that, you know, it's been, it hasn't been the, the most painless uh, route, but it's been incredible um, to be pushed that way. And I'm overly thankful for someone like Paul doing that for me. That reminds me of um, the David Bowie quote where he says that you, you do your best work, not when you're sort of in the ocean and your feet are planted on the ocean floor, but when you just move out a little bit yeah. and your feet can no longer touch the floor and you feel a little bit uncertain and a bit uncomfortable, mm -hmm. that's when you tend to do your best work. Yeah. And so, you know, it all started with a passion for music, a love of, of listening to music and, you know, to come home and turn on my stereo and grab a glass of wine or, or a beer and, and just enjoy, uh, you know, art and expression, um, and, mm. and, and to let that suit the soul and take me away. And what was the last album you played? The last album I played, let's see, I was, it was last night, uh, Manlin Orange would have been it. And it would have been, um, Tides of a Teardrop by Manlin Orange, okay. which is their, uh, this is a group out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, uh -huh. and I've been following them ever since, uh, uh, they were just playing locally in North Carolina. And since then they've blown up, uh, um, backing up the Avet brothers and going oh. on pretty large tours. I just saw them last year, um, in Denver and they played an mm. amazing show and it's, it's, it's bluegrass music okay. uh, with a heavy folk. I mean, it's mostly, mostly folk based. Um, but, mm -hmm. uh, hence the name they, they do have mandolin and, and hints of, of bluegrass. Um, and so, uh, I really love them. Uh, definitely check them out if you haven't heard of them. Okay. Well, we'll I'll probably put a link to them or to that album in the mm -hmm. show notes for this. Um, what other kind of music do you like? I mean, what's the, what's the, uh, all, do you have any like, kinds, fav uh, favorite, favorite records or anything like that? Or? Um, yeah, I, uh, so I love, uh, I love, you know, of course, rock and jazz. Um, mm -hmm. Jeez, uh, as far as favorites go, um, I really like uh, Chris Teeley, you know, so bluegrass and and folk mm -hmm. music, uh, Doc Watson, uh, you know, Grateful Dead. I've I've definitely been listening to Grateful Dead for a while, um, uh -huh. and and you know all of how that branches off into country and folk and bluegrass and blues, of course. Um, mm -hmm. So. I don't think I have necessarily favorites, but I'm trying to constantly discover new music and I might have favorites for the week or for the month. And then I maybe discover new things and then that's like in my constant or, you know, rotation, um, per se. Um, yeah, because a lot of people are like that. Yeah. I mean, if you ask me, which is my fa you know, favorite, I don't know, top five albums of all time today, you'll get a different answer from me next week. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I guess they're all sort of in the sort of top hundred, all swimming around. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah. I just, I'm just try, trying to get some insight into the kind of music you listen to, because mm -hmm. I would, I would assume, and I'm, I'm, this is an assumption. Correct me if I'm wrong, that this music is what informs your uh, listening process at work. 
right when you're yeah. designing gear yeah and and so you know i've been really into the folk thing and uh you know back when uh avet brothers were uh a smaller group around charlotte north carolina i was really into them so mm-hmm. uh one of the best albums i've ever heard was probably uh um emotionalism by avet brothers uh mm-hmm. i mean just an incredible album that takes punk bluegrass and folk music and directs it towards this incredible uh poetic uh piece uh it's mm-hmm. it's really something to check out if if you haven't or if you know you're only familiar with their latest stuff which is um you know been rick rubenized uh it's 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 something to uh check out their older stuff where you know their overall vibe was a little bit more raw right okay i must admit i'm not familiar with them i'm sorry there's you know it's interesting being british and australian is that at, at certain times you you miss out on a lot of acts that are very popular in the usa yeah so for yeah. example i mean you mentioned the grateful dead but mm-hmm. when you know when me and my friends were like really into music in our 20s and the 90s that they, they, they didn't even register right in the uk that is so yeah. and this is not because of some I don't know whether it's promotional machinery or whether they just, because they don't, didn't tour much in the UK, I don't know. But it was never something that really kind of, I, to use an awful corporate term, really came across our collective desks. Well, they, they never really escaped the US. I mean, right. you know, yeah, they tried, they toured Europe in 72, of course. Uh, but, you know, those sh- shows were pretty underground, I believe. Uh, never really right. caught on. You know, jam music in general, I don't think is very large in other parts of the country. Um, I don't know if you've heard of a band called uh, Kikigaku Moyo from Japan. Um, I, I, I listen I'm to sorry. them a lot. They're kind of psychedelic yeah. rock from Japan. Oh, um, that's, that's and, not, psych rock is more my thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I really like them. And, um, you know, it probably goes back to some of my, my love for music and, and maybe the wide... Uh, genres that i listened to are because of my father he he listened to a lot of um yeah post-punk and uh uh, like uh new order and go-betweens um uh, and then van morrison too like so kind of across the board different kind of stuff from more Mm. punk influenced things to uh you know soul and american influence uh like van like van morrison um, so, you know, I, I really switch it up a whole lot and it's, it is really difficult to answer the question. What's, what's your favorite artist or <laughs> <Sure>. album? I- <laughs> it was, a, it was, it was a mean question. I, well, I just yeah. was, yeah, like I say, was just trying to get a, like a handle on the kind of music you listen to. Yeah. Because, yeah. because I did, I, I would just watch the, um, the PS audio promo video for the phono stage that you designed mm-hmm. and it's a really nicely put together video. And I was trying to work out. Well, the records were, I think one of them was Boston. Was that, uh, did I miss? Yeah, so Boston came across, uh, the reason why Boston came up was, um, Boston was one of my records that I'd like discovered music with, you know, Mm. it was, um, I had, at the time I was, I was young and I had, uh, uh, I had a few Beatles CDs at the time. Mm. I, I was listening to the Beatles, but I didn't really discover what it meant to you know what rock and roll really meant and and 
to discover my passion for music until I came across, my father introduced me to Boston record. Mm-hmm. And uh, we set up like a turntable in my bedroom and I would just sit there and go through his record collection. And one of the records that I pulled out was Boston and I put it on and I had never heard a sound like this before, you know, just the harmonization of guitars and the energy. Uh, huh. And so that, that kind of was a defining record for me, especially on the analog format to, to experience the first time I experienced that album itself was actually on a record. And, uh, and I think it's just one of those uh, important albums for me as far as discovery. And another one was Red Hot Chili Peppers, Californication. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I had never really heard something that just caught my ear as much as that, that writing did. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, another kind of important album in my, in my life. So maybe that was a better answer to your question. Well, <laughs> you're not going to be examined with a test score at the end of this, Darren. It's fine. Now tell me, are, are you more of a, a vinyl guy than a digital CD streaming guy, would you say? I'm 50-50. Um, right. And I'm, I'm more so that if I am listening to an album a lot on on my on my Cobas or my title account, that I'm going to buy the record. Mm. Um and, uh, and so, you know, I, I kind of, they kind of feed off of each other and also yeah. different moods too. You know, I'm not always in the mood to clean a record, put it on and worry about lifting it off. Um, uh, you know, uh, lifting the arm after the side. So, uh, you know, there are times for both, but, uh, yes. in the end, I do really love, I think that analog has a place. I think that right now there's not a way that digital can possibly unseat analog in the ways that analog uh uh is is uh is powerful in um in just the ability to uh you know i say this stuff but you know things have changed but (laughs) ability to walk into a record store and uh and to you know discover something and buy it for $3 and bring it home and, and experience it is a, is a powerful mm-hmm. thing. Uh, there's also a lot of music that was never transferred to, to analog. Uh, there's also a lot of music that never sounded good on digital. Why? Cause the, mm. the tapes are, are busted by the time CD came into play. So you can mm. buy old original pressings where the tape was fresh and you'll never have a better version of that recording. Um, so there's a lot of areas where analog just can't really ever be matched. Um, mm. and then there's the argument of mastering and how it does seem that the analog versions, uh, are getting more attention for the mastering and, uh, remastering of certain albums. And a reason for that maybe is that the record companies know that audiophiles are buying records. And the war, the sound, the volume war and the sound level wars don't apply to analog. So, so those are when they're remastered, uh, before being pumped into the lathe, uh, Mm. they're, they're mastered in a more, uh, a higher fidelity manner. So that it might be why, uh, a good analog setup still can sound across the board 
sound more superior than the equivalent digital. You know, I had an almost religious listening experience yesterday. I pulled um, LCD Sound Systems American Dream oh, off the shelf. That's good. One. And I, I, I bought it a couple of years ago. I'd never opened it. Never opened it because I've been just streaming it and I got the download as well. <clears throat> so I finally put it on this turntable. I've got a, a Project Extension 10 um, uh, with an Audiphon Cadenza Black Cart. So it's a pretty high end nice. turntable by yep. my standards, right? Mm-hmm. And I put this record on and I have never heard this album quite like that it was nothing short of astonishing and that doesn't happen to me very often with with vinyl i've got to say mm. so some of the other records i've played on this turntable yeah they're okay mm-hmm. maybe the the, the cart is still running in but anyway i i take and i went to the the loudness database to see what the sort of loudness scores were just for a rough idea and the you know the vinyl pressing had far greater dynamic range than mm-hmm. a CD. I mean, this is assuming a vinyl rip was done in a fairly decent way, which I assume it would be. But mm-hmm. don't. I, here's a question for you, right? And I'll I'll share my experience, and you can tell me what you think about this. Mm-hmm. Is that yes, turntables are very good, as you say. You go to the store, buy a record, come home, and you've got all the sleeve art and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So the, the the physical process is very interesting and very. A, a lot of people get a, a, their enjoyment from that, like me. But if I've got a fairly entry-level turntable with a fairly basic cartridge on it, generally that cartridge, especially if it's been supplied by the turntable manufacturer, it's a bit shit. Yeah. It doesn't sound very good. Yeah. So I'm a bit down on entry-level turntables because I think the industry likes to talk up the magic of vinyl and it's like how it's this amazing experience. But if you go out and buy a Riga P1, the turntable itself is pretty good for the money, but the cartridge, the carbon they put on it, yeah, it's not great. And it's like the basic order funds that Project put on them. So I completely agree with you. I'm, you know, uh, it, and that's the whole thing at the at the bottom of the spectrum in in high end audio where you have the entry level components. An un- mm. entry level DAC will crush the entry level turntable. There's no comparison. And so yes. what that leads to is people they invest in their system, they buy a nice DAC, they buy a nice turntable. And they compare mm. the two and they like their, you know, their uh, responses. There's no comparison. Digital is so much better than the analog. We must have come a long way. And you're dealing with physical, materialistic things that mm. are, that are really limiting the capability of that. Uh, or I should say mechanical things that are limiting the ability of vinyl to be good. And, that costs money, mm. um, you know, handmade or, or high mass things, uh, with high precision, uh, that is money. And, uh, so there's no doubt that digital offers better value. And if you're interested in, in having a high end source for a limited amount of money, um, you know, a good DAC today, uh, you know, between a hundred and, and $500 can offer uh, a much better experience than the equivalent turntable and cartridge combo at that mm. price range. And there's, I agree with you completely on that. But as you move up and you start to solve the problems of analog, those those mechanical issues, um, you get a better cartridge, uh, a low output moving coil, and you you get a good tone arm. Um, mm. You really start to, you're able to extract some of the uh, incredible nuance that's in analog recordings and also 
the mastering, even if it was originally recorded in digital, the mm-hmm. mastering process to make that record uh, seems there seems to be something about that process, the attention into the mastering um, to prep it for the lathe to make sure that it doesn't get overloaded um, and cause groove distortion. Uh, that process, uh, leads to, uh, an incredible sound. Um, so, uh, you know, I, again, I'm 50, 50, you know, I'm, I'm half digital, I'm half analog. Uh, you can have great sound either way. Uh, both are finicky at the top end. Both require a lot of, um, debug in finding out exactly what's the, what input on the DAC sounds the best. How do you interface mm. with your digital source going into the DAC the best? Those things really matter in a digital rig, where with analog, it's what about the cartridge and tone arm uh, compliance compatibility? What about the phono stage and the cartridge compatibility? What about the how sonically all that mixes together to give you the sound that you want? Uh, there are a lot mm. of variables and analog opens up more variables and more tweakability, um, to dial in exactly what you, what you want, but it's going to be expensive and it's going to be, uh, it's going to require energy to understand what those quantities are. The other thing that struck me yesterday, actually, I didn't, I wasn't even planning to talk about this today, but I'm going to go with it. So this project turntable I've got, this extension 10, Mm-hmm. Um, Autophon Cadenza Black mm-hmm. sounds wonderful. It really, it really does, and it's probably the only turntable I've had in the last, I don't know, ten years because I had one in Australia for a little while as well. Um, it's the only one that I really think I could go. Yeah, this sounds better in in many ways than say a similarly priced DAC. And by similarly similarly priced, in this particular case, we're talking. Oof, six or seven grand euros, mm-hmm. you know, so yep. roughly eight, eight grand US dollars. So for ex- here's a good example, PS Audio Direct Stream with the network bridge. I'd say this turntable surpasses it, the Direct Stream in certain areas, I think in certain separation and in tone. Mm-hmm. But you have, I mean, you've, I've had to spend big to get to that point. Yeah. But here's the, here's the rub, right? So I was thinking, okay, but if I've got a direct stream DAC, that's probably going to last me for you know ten years as long as the you know it doesn't develop a fault. Mm-hmm. But with the with the phono pickup, I'm going to have to replace that every three or four years, right? Right, because it's going to wear out. If I play it one record a day, a thousand hours, it's about three or four years. Or you can get so it retipped not, too, right? Yeah. So get it retipped. Mm-hmm. But generally, it's going to be more and more money in in keeping me going for like ten years. I'm going to have to do this three or four times. Um you know, across a t- you know, 10 or 12 year window, which yep. is more expensive in the long run. Plus the fact the media is more expensive. I mean, just when I look, whenever I look at my turntable, I just see a money pit. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's, it's one way to look at it, but the other way you could, you could turn it around and say that the turntable, while it requires maintenance, like you can get your cartridge retipped through Ortofon. Um, mm. at the same time, your turntable is never going to be outdated, but, uh, but the DACs, they they become better and better, and and you're going to want to uh, upgrade the DAC eventually in some sort of hardware perspective. Um, the direct stream kind of helps that by yeah, uh, the so fact that's why I chose that. You do that. get the, yes. <laughs> the software updates, which you know yeah. are 
incredible. I mean, it's like getting a new deck, right? Um, right when you right. get a new software load from Ted, it's it's unbelievable in yes in, in the step forward in in uh, all aspects uh, of Sonic quality. Mm. So, but there is a little bit of a different side of things where it's funny because the analog analog guys say kind of the opposite of oh, you know, all the you know, if I buy a server and a a DAC, those are going to be outdated by ones that cost a fraction of of the price and sound better versus the the turntable that I buy I can have for for 30 years and all I have to do is retip the cartridge. So there it's two two ways of, of skinning the cat yeah, there or looking I guess, at it. Yeah, I guess it is it, it does come down to one's perspective. I guess I mean I love records. I've got lots of records I love buying them, I love playing them. Um but it's more of it, that's the side of my audio life that it I don't really get in. I do some reviews. I do occasional phono stages. I will talk about turntables sometimes, but I like to keep it separate because it's where I get my joy mm-hmm. because obviously everything else is work. Mm-hmm. So the the work pleasure boundary is not clearly defined with streaming and digital for me, whereas with vinyl, it kind of is. So if I'm playing right. a record, it, it usually usually means I'm not working. So I yeah. quite yep. like that. Mm-hmm. Um but I guess, you know, the, the, the phono stage that I would think about pairing with this, and this is not to flatter you at all, but to, that I would pair with this turntable probably would be the, the phono stage that you designed a couple of years ago or last year mm-hmm. for PS Audio, because I understand, well, I know Framer went nuts for it, Michael Framer, and that really got my attention because, you know, Michael is very... Um, expressive with his opinions and if he doesn't <laughs> like something he is going to let you know but i he think he really it. liked <laughs> yeah so. your phono stage right so can, I, this is what i wanted to talk to you about today right is the development of this phono stage because mm-hmm. you've got quite an interesting story yeah so the phono stage is the stellar uh phono um mm-hmm. it's in our stellar line so uh it's our entry level separate line um mm. and it is uh priced at 24.99 mm-hmm. um so it has all the uh bells and whistles that you need for uh a range of cartridges so you have six different loading gains that are um that you can change via the remote you have uh you have different uh loadings um uh resistive loadings that you can pick from also configurable from the Mm-hmm. remote um and so uh you know it offers a wide flexibility for various uh different pickups um whether it's moving coil or mm the direction was to make this phono stage uh fully discrete which means using mm-hmm. separate transistors and building the uh basis for the the actual amplifiers themselves instead of using uh monolithic uh, integrated circuits in which the amplifiers have already been designed for you. So just to, so, so we can be clear for the audience here, mm-hmm. what you're, what you're talking about here is using, capa- um, sorry, resistors uh, and capacitors and discrete components rather than an, um, an all in one chip operational amplifier, right? That's right. So you can, you can build your own amplifier out of discrete parts, which would be mm-hmm. transistors, which are the active devices, mm-hmm. resistors, and capacitors. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, or you could buy, uh, like a monolithic IC integrated circuit that has yeah. a, uh, pre-designed amplifier built into the silicon, uh, from a company. Um, mm-hmm. and there are advantages and disadvantages to, to those things. But the goal, the goal here was to create wide flexibility for the design process, um, in order to, you know, get the, the audio quality exactly where I, where I wanted it to, to go. So is it fair to say then you had, you have more control over every small part of the circuit when you're using discrete components than using an IC because I see you don't get to control what's inside, right? That's right. Yes. Right. So you can, you can change the performance of the amplifier to suit certain applications, uh, not only for audio, but the specific application within that component that it's being used, Mm. um, where op amps are meant for general purpose, um, or for, for a lot of specific applications that don't exactly apply to audio. So Mm -hmm. having discrete amplifiers, uh, that's the massive advantage is to, is the flexibility in design. Hmm. But that also, I guess that means that it's, it's much harder and it's also more expensive. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, right. so the, so when I was designing this, uh, the first step was that to define those aspects of it, that this is going to be a discrete, um, phono stage. Uh, I want that for the flexibility. I'm going to go through various design, uh, processes to, uh, to get where I want to go. And Mm. the, what, what's interesting about this process is that, and this happens with every component or project that I've been, um, that I've worked on so far is that there are two sides of me that are, that are kind of trying to constantly win themselves over. And so the first, the first uh, side is the engineer in me. I, the engineer has a, like a proclivity to chase the quantifiable and to design something by just measuring it and getting Mm -hmm. the measurements correct and Mm -hmm. then hook it up to a stereo and be like, whoa, like, you know, my findings and the measurements and the ability for this circuit to perform uh, better than other circuits have led to an increase in, in audio quality. And so that's mm-hmm. one side of me. I, I really want that. And, and that's a really important thing to stress because uh, I think, you know, if you go through these matters really quickly, it can be misinterpreted as, oh, you're not being uh, careful with the process. And it's, it's because you're not being careful with the process and respecting engineering, uh, theory that you have missed the boat or that you have not fully been able to describe what you're doing. And so Mm. it's important for me to say that I spend so much time thinking about theory. I, I read textbooks on, on circuits. I study circuits. I, simulate circuits, uh, that side exists of me. But on the other side Mm. of the table, there's someone who's the music lover that we discussed earlier, Mm -hmm. um, who wants nothing more than to 
you know, sh- share his feelings with, 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 with the music itself and to express, um, uh, and you know, all my, all my feelings. You want your work to communicate almost how you feel about music. Is that what you're trying to say? No, uh, I, I just want to experience the music to, you know, whether it's, whether it's feelings of neuroticism or, or joyfulness, I just want to, I want that to lead to some sort of like catharsis. Mm-hmm. In the in the sense gotcha. that I, I I want the experience itself, essentially, right. and and so, you know, I don't care about how it measures. I don't care about if there's this oddity in the circuit. I care about how it makes me feel about the music. So that's the other side of me. And and the if you were to intersect these two kind of personalities or these two energies, it's that intersection is the component. Right. So, so that would, that's how I describe the, the SPP's uh, design process is the first step is to uh, attack the, the quantifiable, the, uh, the ability to make a circuit that measures really well. And that's what I did. I, I thought through the circuit design to, uh, reduce the amount of distortion to mm-hmm. increase the amount of uh, frequency response. Uh, the uh, DC characteristics of the amplifier need to be uh, all thought through. Um, mm-hmm. The overall behavior of this amplifier needs to be in a way that looks good on paper. And that's so that's the first step. And what I did was I hooked that product up to my system in which I had a, another phono stage. Mm -hmm. Um, and I replaced, uh, that phono stage with the, with the, uh, prototype and, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't exactly what I was hoping for. Um, I don't want to say that it was horrible. It was better than a lot of equivalent integrated circuit designs, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it didn't, uh, communicate the music at all so um you know was that, and, a, disapp- was that, was that a, um like a philosophical disappointment for you yes you know th- this is a problem it uh, it upsets the the engineer uh in me sure because i want to, to i want to you know n- i want to think that i can quantify this stuff and that i can um that that my knowledge and my work, t- all the simulations, all of the um, reduction in, in distortion and improvements in linearity and the circuit is going to result in something that is is uh, is enjoyable. And so, it, is it fair to say that you made this first prototype with the sole goal of it measuring as best as possible? Yeah, and you didn't really listen to it on, along the way. You just kind of designed it, made. A, a version, plugged it in, listened, and went, hmm, not terrible, but not amazing. Not amazing. Um, and right. one of the massive, one of the big areas in which it was unimpressive in is sound staging. And it's something that, for some reason, high feedback circuits don't do so well. And I don't, I, don't, I can't, I can't generalize and in a few sentences describe why that may be. But, mm. But uh, it had those characteristics of 
you know, stuck in the speaker syndrome. Um, mm. and, and, you know, if you listen to a lot of the, uh, op amp based amplifiers, they do the same thing. They, they just, it sounds like a stereo and it sounds like a really, really good stereo. And then you, so, can I ask a question at this point? Mm. Sorry, a te- like a technical question. So did you use lots of feedback to drive down the distortion? Yeah, so uh, the first step is to create a, create a very linear open loop path. Um, so mm. you want to work on trying to make an open loop path, which is basically the circuit without the feedback applied, you want to mm-hmm. make that as linear as possible, and then you wrap feedback around it. But it's the feedback itself that truly corrects and gets the amplifiers to the performance levels that they are. Um, and feedback mm-hmm. is a wonderful, amazing thing when it comes down to the numbers. Um, it, mm-hmm. If you apply enough, you can essentially eliminate the distortion as far as what what we can measure. If you used enough it would end up being below the noise floor or the floor of the measurement equipment. And it, it, mm. so it's, it's proportional with how much you apply. So if you have X amount of distortion with no feedback and you apply, uh, you know, 10,000 times feedback, mm. um, which would be roughly um, uh, like, uh, it would be a lot, <laughs> but that's right. done a, a very, very often that is actually accomplished. Um, mm. So, you know, it, you uh, if you apply that much feedback, you're going to get a reduction that's that's uh, somewhat around the ratio of how much you've applied. So that would reduce in the, in that case, applying ten thousand times uh, feedback would would uh, would result in a very good circuit. Uh, mm. But there's a lot of uh, nuances there though like so i can't you know that's a generalization i just made so in you know but generally if it's applied correctly uh with mm. and, and has stability then you're going to improve the circuit performance of whatever you have there so so that was right. the, the thought is and that's the standard way of approaching this is use feedback to correct the problems in the circuit and if you use enough mm. uh theoretically the um, parasitics of the circuit, the things that you don't want, they go away. But that didn't work out for you in terms of <laughs> getting the soundstage to be as you hoped it might be. Correct. And, and I don't know if it works out for anybody um, in, in the sense that when you apply this much correction, you have to wonder to yourself, theoretically, like, is, is, is that the way to make a circuit? Is that you, you make a circuit that's meant for global feedback and then you apply so much global feedback that all the problems go away so you're you're making problems and then you're you're fixing the errors Uh, and and there is a there is a thought process that goes through it that says well why not just make a circuit that has less errors to begin with how about that Mm. Um, Mm. there are certain scenarios in engineering where that's not the case like class d amplifiers the innate non-linearity in them um, because they're a non-linear amplifier requires feedback to make them more linear right so in that case feedback is a necessary component without feedback uh you're you're up the creek so 
you, you have to u- utilize feedback and know how to apply feedback uh, to get them to sound good. And same thing with class AB amplifiers. Um, you're going to have some level of crossover distortion still, and you need mm-hmm. to correct that crossover distortion. So feedback is your friend in removing uh, that crossover distortion at higher powers when you enter the right. class AB region in order to make it uh, sound good. So feedback is a necessary thing. I don't ever want to, uh, you know, say that that just because a circuit has global feedback that it's it's bad. But uh, I'm I'm learning that attention to the circuit and getting less errors to begin with, if that's even an mm. option, is the way to go. And so this going back to the table and redesigning this phono stage meant reducing the amount of feedback applied to the circuit. Did you ever think internally to yourself, well, I've made a phono stage, it measures brilliantly, so therefore we should ship it. Did you ever think that? I mean, is that something that companies do think about or... Is this where your inner conflict between the two parts of yourself really came into play? And like, no, I can't do that because yes, the engineering side of me is satisfied, but as a music listener wanting the magic, I'm just undernourished. I'll tell you, the music lover wins through and through. You know, they go through right. battles, but uh, <laughs> but the music lover wins. And the reason why the music lover wins is because when someone buys the component, they listen to music. And they don't yeah. take it to, they don't take it to the lab to to measure it. They they put it in their stereo system and they play music and they hope to experience uh, to have a great experience. And they they hope right. that that component communicates music to them. And so mm-hmm. the music lover wins. And so it's back to the table and the engineer is pushed back into the lab to to now come up with something that's going to satisfy the music lover. And, mm. um, and that, that's the design process that I go through. And the SPP was a defining product for defining that process. Uh, it's where right. I kind of okay. discovered <laughs> and fully defined those things. Mm. So it must've been quite disheartening then to take that initial prototype back into the, uh, into the factory and the workshop and then just put it on the bench and go, I have to start again. Yep, absolutely. And so, so it starts with, with thinking about uh, you know, trying to correct less and try to get more right to begin with. Mm. And, uh, and the result was a circuit that had a lot less feedback, uh, a circuit that measured uh, a little bit uh, uh, it wasn't as impressive uh, on the on the ban- on the bench, but mm. uh, when brought into the listening room, it really started to communicate music and to uh, break free of the speakers to have a dimensional aspect to it, to tonally to have tonal contrast, the ability for a component to express uh, a, a large um, difference in tonalities. That's a huge one uh, because a lot of integrated circuits, um, who which use a lot of feedback, 
they start to sound, they make everything kind of sound the same. And mm. the, the, the colors start to become the same too. Almost like if you take a photograph and you apply too much light and you overexpose the photograph, you notice mm. how, how the, uh, the black starts to become, you know, it starts to have a whitish quality to it, a washed mm. outness. And the, the reds aren't as vibrant anymore. They're now washed out too. And they have a little bit of that the, uh, that, um, that, that contrast is missing between the, the different colors. And so mm. what you have is a distortion and you can kind of take the same approach and dial the, the lightness down and have it underexposed. And that now the blacks dominate and you start to get a somewhat washed outness in, in a way of a lack of definition, a lack of being able to see details. And so this is kind of how I view, you know, audio tonality is that when you have the light just right in tonality and in balance, that maximum detail comes through, but you mm -hmm. also get the vividness of colors, of tonal color. Uh, and the higher, higher feedback circuits, they tend to wash things out to a grayness where things kind of sound similar. And then you put on a component that has high tonal contrast and you start to, you start to just feel this, so many senses of different types of, of tonality, whether that's, you know, a brightness of a saxophone or the, the boldness and the richness, or I'm sorry, the brightness of like a trumpet or the boldness mm. and richness of a saxophone. You know, those are two really contrasting tonalities and that's why they work well together. But, um, so is it, is it fair to, to say from or to surmise from what you've just said that in some way leaving a little bit of distortion in the circuit is a good thing for tonality? So, you know, that can be somewhat of a red herring because, right. you know, it, it, it's, and, and that's a, a very similar, or it's a common argument is that, oh, you just like the distortion. That's what you like. Yes. But the thing is, is that if you look at studies on, harmonic distortion, um, it, it requires a lot to hear it, but there's another element to harmonic distortion and that is complexity. Mm -hmm. um, it, harmonic distortion is a nonlinear distortion. So there's linear distortions like amplitude distortion and phase distortion. These are what's called linear distortion uh, mm -hmm. types. And then there are, there are products uh, called nonlinear distortion products. And that is more like a uh, harmonic distortion or IMD or SID, um, which are all different. These are different types of nonlinear uh, distortion products. And mm. what, what's interesting is if you break it down within the nonlinear components, or if you break it, break the, the products down within that nonlinear component, it's that is that distortion can be more linear or it can be less linear. So it is a nonlinear product, but you can have more linear types of distortion. And so uh, right. an, an ex uh, just an, uh, one example of this is uh, our speakers. Mm -hmm. So speakers have high distortion, uh, even the best ones. Uh, yep. 0.3% harmonic distortion is considered good you know, at mm -hmm. hundred dB output, that's like a, that's a very 
state-of-the-art uh, performance on a driver. But mm -hmm. the thing about that is that the process in which that harmonic distortion is created is very linear. It's, it's natural because there's not many, it's simple in nature because there's not many components that are, um, synthetic, uh, interacting and creating a complex component or product. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you don't hear the harmonic distortion in speakers that much. That's why you can listen to a speaker that has 0.5% and be like, wow, this is really great. And this is really transparent. But if you put a, a, a electronic piece up there, if you put an amplifier or if you had a DAC that was 0.5% distortion, um, and it was utilizing feedback and was complex in nature, um, it would ruin the sound. But mm. then if you put a tube amplifier, like a set amplifier, single under triode amplifier, mm -hmm. that has 0.5% distortion, you could then maybe have conclusions that it's pretty transparent and maybe you even like this. And the, the difference between those two scenarios is the complexity of the products, the complexity of the harmonic distortion itself. And... Uh, okay. And, and so it's important first thing to make a circuit that's going to be simple in nature. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's short and really simple only uses a few components. It can, but that it's, it's byproduct, the product that it makes, which is basically what you want to reduce. That's distortion is simple in nature. And, and so having a, having a circuit that, that produces, um, you know, moderate amounts of harmonic distortion, but is simple, isn't going to color the sound. It's not the harmonic distortion that's coloring the sound. So if the, if the circuit is simple in nature, it produces 0.02% distortion. That is mm -hmm. so low compared to your speaker. Um, sure. so in other words, there are other things going on and to focus just on one measurement, which is what a lot of people do, um, is mm -hmm. is really uh not the way to approach it we need to approach it as a system that you have all these different behaviors that you have all these different phenomena going on at once and that contributes to an overall single experience and a subjective experience of oh it's bright or oh it's it's balanced sounding or or it has layering um all these terms that we use or uh, however we experience our components is really uh, the cumulative effects of all these different electrical phenomena. So it's, you're going to hear a lot, you know, especially engineers uh, who don't specialize in audio, you're going to hear them talk about harmonic distortion and that the numbers should be as low as possible. And you're going to hear um, them talk about frequency response and that if you have a phonostage that varies a little bit in frequency response, that it's going to ruin everything. Well, I mean, you're not looking, you're, th these people aren't looking at it as a whole. They're not looking as a whole system. I mean, mm -hmm. you might get them complaining about, you know, a 0.5 dB change in frequency response when the speaker is varying plus minus 5 dB. So it's, you know, how does that ruin everything? when your speakers are so flawed to begin with? The answer is, 
is complexity in how all those various uh, behaviors interact with each other. It's not it's not this one specific thing that we can measure and be like, oh, that's better than this. But you can measure those, that distortion profile, the, the, the makeup of the distortion, right? That's correct. And then, and what's interesting is that overall linearity in how complex those components are translates also to intermodulation distortion. If you look at the products of the intermodulation distortion, it mocks the linearity of the of the harmonic distortion products as well so not only uh, intermodulation means that it's multi-signal and so it's actually Mm -hmm. a really 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 good test now we're getting into a more complex test that shows you the interaction between frequencies and this is this is very good for for audio because that is what music is 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 various frequencies playing at the same time it's not just a test signal. It's a nope. yeah. So in 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 your lab in your workshop, you must have a fair amount of measurement gear that can profile all, all of this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. is this this is this available to the general public? Should they want to buy it? And if so, is it is it megabucks or is it reasonably affordable or what is it? Well, um, so I'm using uh, a standard in audio measurement, which is uh, audio precision analyzers, and those generally mm-hmm. are a lot of money. Um, they're between uh, ten and and fifty thousand dollars for a unit. So, yeah. so it's it's not very practical for somebody that just wants to measure their equipment. But you can, mm-hmm. what you can do is you can buy a a really nice sound card that has low distortion, and you can actually measure amplifiers using sound cards. And then there's um, I believe there's a lot of uh, freeware on the internet uh for interacting with that and analyzing the signals that are coming in on your on your uh, line input on the mm. uh, on the sound card, and sure. that can allow you to that'll give you a certain you know floor distortion floor you know or whatever you're measuring um, in order to you'll be able to see the products of of, of probably a lot of um, a lot of components out there. So uh, so it can be done for probably under $500 or so, you can piece together a, a decent home measurement setup that's good enough to measure the majority of audio equipment out there. But what if somebody took your Stellar Phono Pre and set up that kind of measurement system and measured it and mm-hmm. published those results on the net? Would, would, they, would they come up true? I mean, could a lot go wrong in doing that? Well, they, they do a lot of pretty standard types of measurements. So you know, mm. we do have, uh, I think, uh, was it Science, um, uh, what's the name of that website? It's uh, sciencereview.com or science. Audio, audio science. Audio review, science, yeah, yeah review. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is an interesting topic because, okay, so here's a, this is an example of someone with now an audio precision analyzer. So he's able to capture those measurements and and then put them on his website and I'm in favor of that. I mean, you know, that's mm. great. It's great that you're able to go on the web and to look at at the measurements. I think that's mm-hmm. something that should be allowed. Um, people want to want to understand what a certain component before they buy it measures like, then that's great. The problem I have with it is that within that text uh, and within the review itself, there are generalizations made because of a specific measurement 
um, that because this measurement measures this way, uh, now the component is flawed and is so bad that you never should ever even think about buying it. And so, so you're you're saying the interpretation of the measurements is is somehow off. Yeah, I, I believe that they should just be objective. I mean, if they're trying to have an objective review in a website like Audio Science Review, you should be re- objective and not come to conclusions on on the measurements themselves. Because audio is like I described earlier, you can't take a single measurement and and make any use of it. Um, you have to listen to it as well. Well, this is the thing that I was talking about with somebody else recently is that you cannot escape subjectivity even when you're doing measurements because at right. some point you're going to have to look at the chart or the graph and go, what does this mean? Now, mm-hmm. you might put that in, in front of three different en- engineers mm-hmm. and get three different answers because the subjective interpretation of the graph might differ. Right. And I think that's what you're saying is, is the problem. I mean, you might look at a graph from, you know, say, like the uh, SPP, and then Amir at Audio Science Review might look at the same graph, and you, you know, you might come to different conclusions, or you might see his conclusion and go, "Well, actually, no, that doesn't mean that." Yeah, exactly. I, right. you know, and so I, uh, you know, it's not going to be these these components that I make, and, and probably in the future as well, they're not going to be the best measuring components ever. But they're a product of what I think matters you know, like the, the, the various things that really matter in audio quality, uh, the circuit is designed in such a way to highlight those things. And that doesn't mm. necessarily mean that it's going to highlight and become a superstar on the bench. And that's not my goal. And I, mm. I don't, I don't care. I think that, I think that, uh, publishing measurements like that is, is, is awesome. And it's, it's great. But uh, but you shouldn't come to conclusions uh, that are so ignorant of oh this is just unbelievable that that this measurement is the way it is it, it, you know it's just um, that is really putting you in a box I can promise you um, mm. it's putting you in a box to to make those kind of conclusions about it um, you really should listen to it and uh, develop a lexicon of audio components before you start making. Uh, large assumptions like that. Well, especially as you have already proven to yourself that the best measuring phono stage <laughs> doesn't sound great. <laughs> so I guess this is probably why you've, is this what, no, I'll ask you as a question. Is this why you now say that you're going to be making products that maybe don't measure quite as well as they would have done had you designed them two or three years ago where your focus was just getting the measurements right? Yeah, I would say so because of the circuit style. Um, mm. The the uh, I'm going to be limiting the use of global feedback and utilizing the use of what's called localized feedback, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe has better sound quality across the board. But it doesn't allow you to apply the same amount of feedback. Um, and so, because I can't apply 100 dB of feedback or 120 dB of feedback. I'm not going to get my my distortion products below what the AP can measure, um, mm. and I don't care about that. Um, and I've actually now moved on to you know analyzing reviews, objective reviews of components like in Stereophile or 
or um, audio science review and and more like looking at what the products are and looking at those measurements and being like, wow, you know, I mean, I think this thing might actually sound really good uh, based on based on what I think the circuit might be because of the profile. So I've started to right. develop some some lexicons on what uh, what certain circuits look like under the under examination and and when you see that you can kind of start to think oh like they're using this type of circuit or they're using this method for reduction and distortion and that's good or that's bad so so it's it's understanding as a whole trying to look and examine at a bunch of different uh, sets of of data and then and then drawing conclusions based on all of those sets. So it's mm. not just, oh, bad distortion, therefore this component's bad. It's it's more so <laughs> of, of, I think they might be using this style of circuit, and this circuit tends to have these sorts of sonic uh, advantages or disadvantages. So, um, yeah. So did... When you designed the second version of the SPP, did the topology of the circuit change fundamentally, or was it just the feedback that changed, the feedback implementation? There were parts of the circuit that had to change fundamentally. Um, mm. And so one of the other goals to the phono stage was to make it um, very low noise. Uh, mm. And there's ways of doing that. This is another area where discrete circuits completely uh rule over integrated circuits uh, is noise, input noise. So uh, mm -hmm. using paralleled uh, low noise JFETs will get you, if it implemented correctly, will get you better uh, noise performance than uh, integrated op amps as well. Um, so um, noise was another factor in all this. So yeah, I had to change the circuit, but some elements like that stayed the same. So Mm -hmm. The outcome is that the SPP is an incredibly low noise preamp because it's got a Toshiba, uh, it's got par paralleled Toshiba JFETs on the front end. So it's very low noise. So when you took the second version home, listened to it and went, oh, this is much better. Did, did you then go back into, say, I don't know, listening room one at the factory and then put the original into the, <clears throat> into the system and then, then put in the new one and do an AB? for everybody or for yourself or whatever? Did you do that? Yeah, I kept the same prototype. And then you start on a new one when you're changing or you're making such a, a dramatic change. And I even mm. do that when I do small changes. Um, I'll, I'll change one actual uh, component in a separate chassis and then compare back and forth between uh, a unit that's unchanged, a control unit, and the mm -hmm. unit that that I modified, and then and then listen to the two differences. So, because I, I, you know, when I first heard about this this story of you, you know, designing two, and the first one measuring well and not sounding great, and the second one not measuring as well but sounding much better, mm -hmm. I thought it, this was a, were, here would be a great opportunity to demo the two of these units at you know, shows, not that they're going on at the moment, but that that's a, I, I guess my goal isn't to, to prove out that I was right necessarily. Um, the goal mm -hmm. is to offer a product that has, it gives you the experience that I was going after. And I think that the results and the feedback are, 
pretty indicative that we were in the right direction with uh, the way that we went with the circuit. And, um, you know, it, it kind of, it goes back to something I've been thinking about recently, which is, you know, I'm not, I'm not making, when I make components, it's not really in a way that I'm thinking, oh, I can't wait to like impress people. I can't wait to like get these reviews and I can't wait to, to just be successful in this. It's really, it stills that, that music lover, you know, in, in his room, uh, when he was, you know, 22 years old and enjoying music, it's, it's about satisfying him and, um, and, and just trying to keep my head down and, uh, and chase after, you know, what I want as a listener. And if people like that, then they're, you know, then, then that's great. And if they dislike that, then they're free to, and, and, and find a, a different component that, um, satisfies their taste. Sure. But I guess that what I was driving at is that there is an opportunity for you to demonstrate firsthand so people could hear for themselves the lesson that you learned firsthand. So rather than you just telling the story as we're doing today, mm -hmm. is that you can demonstrate here's prototype A, you know, there is, you know, we should take caution in obsessing over measurement because it can lead us probably in the wrong direction or lead us off the path of where we should mm -hmm. be going, right? So that mm -hmm. the obsession with measurements is somehow not as a flawless a pursuit as one might think, right? And I think right. being able be, that's a demo that I would love to see because I'm, I'm just obsessed with A-B demos at shows because there aren't enough of them anyway. So mm -hmm. I always love to kind of go to a room and people say, okay, listen to this and now listen to this and let me tell you about why these two things sound different. What are they? What are the reasons? I find that really instructive and obviously... That's not something I can do at home. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not something a lot of people can do at home. But I realize it's a, is it controversial? I don't know whether it is really. No, not really. I don't think so. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I just, I just think that would be a very interesting demo for a lot of people. Yeah. That is a cool idea. Yeah. I think something else I'd like to do is, is um, that could be really cool is have DIY projects in the future that, you know, here's a very, you know, excellent measuring circuit that you can build. Mm -hmm. And then here's something that, you know, maybe doesn't measure as well, but has some uh, characteristics about it that lead to better audio quality. And so, you know, that right there, that description is more so, you know, a better way of spinning all this because I, sure. you know, I don't necessarily yeah. like to say that the circuits that I use measure <laughs> poorly. You know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's not about that. It's just that they don't measure as well as, the stuff with 120 dB of feedback that you can't even see, right. you know, our harmonic on, on the AP on, I mean, mm. you know, that is extreme, you know, so I'm, I, I'm in favor of measurements and I'm in favor of a, of a circuit, you know, generally behaving well, but it's just these extremes. And that's essentially what the SPP was, was something that measured extraordinarily well. Mm. Um, so I just would like to make that distinction. Yeah, as you say, the ex the extremes of any particular pursuit mm. are fraught with problems. Yep. And as you have found that treading sort of a middle path is probably the road to success. I mixed two metaphors there, didn't I? But <laughs> but you know what, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Like I, would, just, I would say that's that's uh, that's very accurate. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'm just always very wary of um, 
yeah extremes in anything really because it te- they tend to lead to sort of dogmatic pursuits yeah. and people lose all sense of reality and focus and I- yeah oh, absolutely and and you know then you uh an- another thing that's been really interesting is to analyze you know um other people in the field and to get to know either personally get to know them or you're you're just uh maybe you purchase their product and you experience their product um and then you put that together with their philosophies that they talk about. And, um, and you know, what, one thing that's really been interesting to me is just how I, I really have a lot of respect for people who may have almost opposite opinions than me, or, Mm. um, or maybe some people that have very similar ones, but, but, you know, someone like, you know, Bruno is, is an exceptional engineer and I have so much respect for him. Um, I, I read probably everything that he publishes. I think he's brilliant. Um, but yet everything you've heard from me today is not in line with what Bruno would say. Um, so it's really important that we, you know, keep open-minded as well. And, and, um, I think that, you know, these people who have been very successful in the field, I look up to them and, you know, they're, they are, uh, what motivates me to stay open minded and to, uh, try things, uh, and then go listen. And, um, and, you know, we have so many brilliant people in the field, uh, that it's really, it's that are worth listening to and, and really worth uh, following. And, uh, that's certainly one of them. Um, you know, John Curl and Bascom King, Nelson Pass, these names, are legends and it, mm. they their work uh should never be forgotten um and we should just build upon uh their findings and their their pieces of of art art and uh their their products of their hard work and findings and um and so, you know, I try to keep in tabs with a lot of these people and uh, friends, friends with some of them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's incredible to be able to talk to these type of people who have really laid the pathway for so many pieces of hi-fi equipment. <laughs> oh, I agree. Yeah. I think it's important to have people, you know, to, to, to know who your inspirations are. And to actually have them, because I mean, you know, I've worked jobs where I've looked around me and going, well, who, you know, who is, who is leading the way here? Who am I going to, who do I look towards for my own future in this particular mm-hmm. role? And I've worked jobs where that, that's been nobody. Whereas what I do now, absolutely the case, you know, there's you know, people I looked up to, people who inspire me, people, I'm um, generally, these are people who I think are much better than me at what they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but that gives me something to aim for. I think that's yep. really important, you know? Otherwise, I mean, it just becomes very difficult. I mean, I do wonder, people like Bruno Putzes, right? Uh-huh. Who inspires him? I, I bet it's nobody in audio because he's sort of at the top of the top of the tree, really, isn't it? So where, who does he look up to? <laughs> Maybe he yeah, has well, to look back to uh, les- the legends of the past. I don't know. I'll ask him. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, I'm sure. And he's bringing in a lot of outside influence, like you just highlighted. Um mm. And, you know, uh, a lot of the engineers, uh, have brought in external influences, you know, I mean, John Curl is a physicist, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's, um, he understands, uh, 
the construction of, of FETs um, and, you know, knew how to, realized how to utilize those, uh, those devices better than other people. And he actually came up with several uh, t- topologies that no one had ever used before is now credited towards those topologies. Um, and then you have, you know, Bascom King, who's developed a style as well. That's a very pronounced style. If you look at the circuits, um, mm. and, and Nelson pass again, another, another style. So the way I see it is less of this engineer is, is making something better and more that this engineer makes something that is uniquely defined around their style. That's the way I view it. I don't view it that, you know, that Bruno is better than Bascom or that Bruno is ahead of everybody else. I view it that Bruno has a unique, he's brought a unique style into audio. And so my view is a little bit different than, than what I see some people have, uh, especially on the internet and comments. It seems that people believe that there are fundamental issues that if they're solved will lead to uh heaven or something and and i don't know if that's the way i view audio necessarily it's it's an experience so it leads to like different experiences but they can there can be plus and minuses to those experiences uh, just because an amplifier doesn't produce you know any bad products like distortion products uh doesn't mean that it's going to lead to nirvana so uh so it's just a different style and a different flavor and a different taste and whether it's you know bascom or it's john curl nelson pass these are all very uniquely defined uh styles that are worth learning how to either implement or or just understand what that leads to sonically. And that can lead to new, more developed or more complex styles. And uh, yeah. So what you're saying is it's, a, it's almost a matter, like when you're at that level, when you're sort of operating at the peak of the, your your own powers or the, the peak of the industry um, or, the, or the, the cutting edge of engineering, it just becomes a matter of sort of implementation and I guess also philosophy, really. So, I mean, you could, I mean, for example, you could look at, say, I don't know, a Rembrandt and a Picasso, and they're both amazing artists, but to say which one is technically better is just, <laughs> it's, kind <laughs> no, it's, of a, it's kind of a ridiculous question. It's, really, not, isn't it? worth, mean, it's not worth uh, even exploring. It's, it's better right. to say, what's better for you? What's going to make you reach for the next record? What's going to make you excited? What's going to make you call up your friend and be like, you have to get over here right now because there's stuff happening in my system right now that's just unbelievable. And, mm. uh, and that can happen no matter, you know, uh, or uh, from products from any of those designers that we mentioned. And, but it's all different. And there's a different experience that is associated with those designs. And they're mm. all um, relevant. Uh, and, and just because you've come across, you know, a way to implement a certain technology better than, than anyone has before doesn't necessarily mean that it, um, that it makes those designs, uh, not relevant anymore. Um, they're, they're unique pieces, uh, that can lead to like different tastes and different flavors 
that are stimulating. And audiophiles do this. They, they go around different types of components and there's enjoyment and different styles or ways of enjoyment out of all different types of equipment. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think people, you know, want to, the, the, the people that think that, you know, if a problem is solved, then we'll reach audio nirvana are the people that want the audio world to be seen as a very sort of simplistic right. organism and, or mechanism, right? Yeah. And it's because the audio world is hugely complicated with an Correct. untold number of possibilities. And right. in order to minimize those, the number of possibilities that they personally are faced with, they might say, well, okay, I'm going to eliminate all of this class D because class D sucks. And I'm mm -hmm. going to eliminate all single driver speakers because they're rubbish as well. You know, just right. it's over this oversimplification it is. is, is, is born of a, a need to really limit, limit the number of options that one is faced with or the number of, uh, People, people can't, a lot of people can't cope with open-ended questions or, right. you know, do you know what I mean? Like they yeah. want concrete answers for everything. And that's a psychological thing. I'm not going to say it's a flaw. It's just a different kind of person, just as amplifiers, different people are different. Right. But uh, I think it's, you tend to see more of those people online because it's something you can discuss online. If mm. you're talking about specifications measurements these are things that you can absolutely come together with uh, come together um on a forum and discuss because mm -hmm. you don't need to listen because these are just numbers right you're just kind of right. pushing numbers around a board and i guess that is also part of the desire i've said this before desire that people have to be part of the conversation yeah and and you know if i, I do find that some of the largest assumptions are from engineers, actually. Uh, engineers that think that, um, you know, there are problems, well, they, they identify problems in audio to solve and they, they believe they have the solutions. And this really is, is a, a product of mm. when you go to engineering school, you're basically, you're taught that we're here to solve problems. That's, that's something that your job mm. is to do as an engineer, your, your job is to solve problems. And then what we're going to do is your job to make it um, more possible to solve those problems is to assume things because you have to eliminate variables to be able to attack and to define what you want to find, find out and to solve. Um, and so mm. in an engineering test on like, for instance, a circuit test or an amplifier test, you might have assume that the, the current gain of this transistor is, is infinite. Uh, assume that things are perfect in various different uh, aspects and then solve for this. And so as engineers, we're taught to generalize, mm. to simplify in order to have a better chance at solving problems. And so what I find is it's not the actual process itself that's flawed. It's the, it's the, uh, it's when they simplify and assume things that aren't correct is the, where they make the first mis, uh, misstep. And that's exactly what you were pointing out that it's easy and, and we're all guilty of it. I'm, I'm guilty of it too, of assuming things that just aren't true in order to simplify the problem and have a better idea of the problem and audio is so complex that you possibly can't say 
that because of these few specifications or because it the way it measures on an AP will lead to sonic nirvana. That is, those are assumptions that just are mm. not true. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder whether um, people who've gone through engineering school, I haven't, but like go through this sort of electrical engineering, you know, however long it takes, many years, and then put it into practice, you know, mm-hmm. designing their own amps and whatever for, I don't know, like for 20 or 30 years, that they get used to the feeling, and it is a feeling, that there is a... Everything can be solved. Everything is measurable, account, you know, countable, and that there isn't anything mm-hmm. that I cannot solve. But I think it, I think they box themselves into sort of. I'm guessing here. Maybe you can speak to this. Some people box themselves into very small little worlds where, yes, everything they mm-hmm. know in this world is true, but it's not representative of the right. real world, and they lose sight. Yeah, you of find that. a comfort space. It's a it's a comfort space in design and and. Uh, in theory, where you're like, you know, this is a, a a structure that I work around, and you know, the structure has to be intact, mm. and I can't escape out of that structure. I'm not willing to allow that structure to fall, and and the the point at which you know I allowed the structure to fall in my theory was when I went back to the bench and said, I'm going to redesign this thing because um, my assumptions were incorrect and. It's time to be open mm. with myself. And it's that I trust what I hear and I trust what I feel in, in my stereo system because I've done that my whole life with, with trading out in and out gear. It's, it's a feeling that I have right away whether this thing is making me want to listen to music or is this thing making me analyze my system and think about how hi-fi it is or, or how clinical the sound is <laughs> and how detailed everything is. Um, you know, I, I, I will analyze it under that with those metrics and, uh, and you know, the, the, that's the structure that holds the subjective side. And then, and then the structure had to fall, it had to give for the engineering side and, and say that I need to also observe mm. and then use that observation for, uh, for, to optimize the, design itself and so it's it sounds a little bit more scientific when you spin it that way but observation i don't know when observation went out the window for 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 engineering but it seems that in audio uh is it's more so about the specifications and all that than than the actual observation so do you think it's fair to say that you've you know you may have started out as a measurement idealist and now you've become through this experience you've gone through with the SPP, you've become more of a pragmatist. Well, my my uh, the components that I would listen to and that I collected before I went through engineering school and while I was in engineering school uh, didn't quite they weren't objective mm. components. I mean, you know, I'm a massive fan of of audio research and and Conrad Johnson. Um, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I had a, you know, analog setup, a Riga analog setup, a VPI analog setup. So, so it wasn't necessarily, I wasn't a, um, uh, I wasn't into how it measured. I was into how it sounded back then. And so, uh, I'd say that, you know, these mm-hmm. two sides of me that I described have always been there. It's just implementing, implementing them in an actual creative and product development 
environment is a different situation when you have deadlines, when you have, when, when you have managers, you know, uh, expecting product, um, to implement those Mm. ideals or, or those ideas in that scenario is a different situation. And, and, um, you do lean towards wanting to measure something and be like, yes, it's good. Like, so, so ship it, get it, get it, you know, get it out of here because I've checked it off and it's this green check Mm. and we know that it's good and we know that it's going to be great. And so, and so it's easier to, to somewhat, you know, get into that mode and feel more comfortable in that I'm using engineering and I'm using theory and I'm using measurement to prove that my product is, is a success. And so dipping into the world of subjectivity in a product development perspective is, is, um, can be daunting and, and, and it's, it's very, uh, it, it, I was very uncomfortable at first making decisions around listening. It's, it's, you have to mm. have experience again, you know, it goes back to the experience thing. I'm, I'm younger, I'm, I'm developing my experiences. Um, and, and, and it's scary at first, yes, you know, yes. because you're also, you went to school and you're taught all these things. You're taught to make products based on, you know, measurements and, and based on theory and based on, you know, engineering practices. Um, and not necessarily that I think that, you know, that trumpet is a little too bright and shouty and what do I do about that? Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's a process in which you need to ease into balance of the engineer and the music lover. So I guess maybe what you're saying is that you can study this stuff all you like, and that's very important. But when you then move into real world product design for a proper hi-fi company that actually ships stuff and sells stuff, those skills that you learn in school are sort of tempered by the product development process within a certain company or, you know, even for to satisfy your ears as well as, I don't mm. know, Paul's ears or whoever's, you know, that you, you only really begin to learn or you, or you rather you engage in another, another phase of learning after you've left school and you begin designing. I don't want to use the term in the real world because I think it's so patronizing and I was trying to dance mm-hmm. around all of that just there, but I guess, yeah, I, I guess, you know, you, there's a lot of people out there on the internet who've who've studied this stuff, but they've never they've never designed a product and and brought it to a retail market. They've just you know, they, and they mess around at home, and that's fine. But that clearly is not the same as what you've done in going to school and then going to design a product for a proper company. Yeah, and I think part of my confidence was probably a little bit of my ignorance of that of of just knowing that, you know, my previous DIY efforts resulted in components that sounded really good and, um, and that I could bring that Mm. into a product development environment and be successful. And what I have to say to that is that, again, it's just two different things. I mean, actually implementing it in a product development environment is completely different than making it for yourself, uh, in your living room, um, and just for your stereo and, and not ever having to go through production, never having to manufacture thousands of them and them all, you know, come out 
as a consistent product. I mean, there's so many things that you don't have to even think about. The money, you know, money of, of components. Um, uh, so, mm. so being that DIY is really uh, a foundation um, for, for knowing how to tweak and to modify circuits to make them sound good, but um, it's not great practice in, in the actual product development world. Uh, you really have to just like jump into the deep end and, and stay afloat. Right. Yeah. There's a long way from your garage right. to a proper factory or yep. a proper company. <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, <laughs> designing your own equipment is the best thing that you can possibly do to, uh, to learn about audio. And, and it also gives you the, the ability to tweak with no time limit, uh, and budget and learn about what, what, you know, how things sound. I mean, you know, resistors, for instance, sound dramatically different. <laughs> and I've, I've spent so much time listening to passive components in, in a very controlled environment. Um, and, and resistor mm-hmm. selection alone can be massive changes. So that just opens up more options for you and ability to kind of direct your, the sound towards where you're trying to go and, and doing, doing DIY projects is probably the, the single most important thing that you can possibly do if you want to uh, become a, a design engineer in audio. Well, I hope that inspires people listening to this to kind of get off their asses and do something like that. I wish I had the time, Darren, but I just don't in what I do. But thank you so much for your yeah, time today you. and for talking with us. I really appreciate it. You've got a fascinating story. I think it's really cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, my pleasure. And I, I hope at some point when all this sort of coronavirus nonsense is out of the way, we get to uh, meet in person when I'm next to the U- US show. That would be great. Absolutely. I look forward to that. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and PS Audio's Darren Myers. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston and music came from Ben Pitt.